Hello and welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jason. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're bringing you a Data Cafe US election special. So, I mean, I want to ask, why are we doing this? I think I know why we're doing this. Um, we've now interviewed today, but you're going to take us through some of the insight that you've delved into with the upcoming, I mean, almost immediate US election, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, we, we did ask uh, Vice President Biden whether he was available, but uh, he's, he's, uh, he's apparently on some kind of speaking tour at the moment, so... Uh, no, indeed. So, but no doubt his people got back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they were very polite. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we noticed that there was an election going on and, and it was very exciting watching all of the discussion and analysis of this. Um, so we thought, well, it'd be nice to have an episode. And then we realised that, to be honest, it, it was probably a good idea if we did the episode before the election actually happened, yeah. rather than rather than take our usual very, very easy time about it. Even on that, you say, we knew there was an election coming up. I mean, I, I hold my hands up. I have been trying to minimise my exposure to the news <laughs> and to the absolute influx of information <laughs> and pandemic and everything aside. So I'm just t- dipping in and out uh, to make sure that nothing has gone absolutely crazy. But yep. what's going to be very interesting about this, I think, is coming at it from a data science perspective. So I'm going to ask you, Jeremy, why is this relevant to data science, first of all? Sure. So this is a bit of fun, but but I think has some really serious uh, topics behind it, which I hope we can explore briefly today. So if you look at what a uh, an election, you know, represents it's it's an expression of the of the will of many people voting to say I would like this person to be president or I would like this other person to be president or it might be a, a senator or a congressman or anyone else that you're electing, of course. But in the run up to those elections, you have something quite quite interesting happening, which is many organisations, different organisations, constructing polls of people in a particular um, area. So in the US, they're polling people in various key states around the country, and they're trying to infer from that how those people are going to vote. Not just the people they interview, of course, but how the, the whole state is going to vote in, in the upcoming election. So that's really, I think that underpins so much of statistics just right there. You've got you've got a, a big population of people representing the population of the country or the population of the state, and you haven't got the resources to ask every single one of them how you're going to vote. And even if you did, there might be some interesting things where they might lie to you or they might not they might not want to answer. But what they're going to do is they're going to ask a thousand people or twelve hundred people or whatever to to give them their preference and they will infer from that how the rest of the state or the rest of the country is going to vote in the election. Yeah. And this sense of asking people it seems so simple to me from the outset as a kind of setup experiment that the answer is, I mean, it's not yes or no, but essentially it's one or the other. You kind of just have two boxes that you're kind of going to tick here, right? But 
that simplicity is then diluted by all of these other factors that you've already mentioned about the idea of sampling and all the issues and the fact that people are autonomous and can change their mind and yeah. what's amazing about an election is that this is not um, as a physicist what I would like to think of as a um, perfectly spherical experiment in a vacuum <laughs> everything in the lay of the land moves so much oh absolutely so one of the big questions is like when polls go wrong you know what what kind of an effect can that have yeah i mean you'd think it would be simple wouldn't you You'd think oh well we just ask a few people they'll tell us what they think and then we'll just present that as the view of the overall voting population but oh my words uh you know it's uh it's it's so much more complicated you have uh many different things to consider so Maybe as a case in point, we'll have a look at the previous presidential election. So this is when Hillary Clinton was standing against Donald Trump in 2016. And the polls were coming out really right up to the close to the election, saying that they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to, to, to win the election. And when they delved into that, it turned out that when they'd been asking people how they were going to vote, they had been getting responses. Now, they also collect information about the, per- the person that they're asking, ascertain if they're male or female, but um, so the gender's important, age is important, are they, are they a senior, are they um, you're just out of college, um, are, do they have a job, what sort of job are they in? So there's quite a lot of contextual information that gets collected and collected when they when they do these polls. And then they have a look at the overall yeah. breadth of uh, the sample. You know, does it have enough people from the age group over 65, say? Does it have enough people in the 40s to 50s bracket? And so on. Mm. And if it doesn't have enough people in these brackets, in these various categories, uh, and by enough, I mean, you know, isn't basically reflecting the overall makeup of the population of that state okay right so that subsample is not representative exactly and that's and that's really i mean and so you get this whole notion of is my subsample biased in some way is it is it did i just get unlucky did i not get the right quite the right mix of people so in 2016 famously they didn't quite get the right mix of people with college education versus non-college education and they just didn't realize that was a big deal and it turned out that was a what call a prior a a a factor which would massively impact whether you voted for either hillary clinton or uh, donald trump and because they hadn't corrected for that um, and they discovered in fact that they had a bias in favor of people who had a college education then the, the their samples were coming out giving them a very strong indication that they thought hillary clinton was going to win Having since looked at that, they've now got lots of correcting factors in the apparatus to be able to allow them to produce a more balanced sample, which then allows them to infer, hopefully, a more accurate poll uh, result at the end of the day. Yeah, this sounds straight away like a kind of Bayes setup, right? You've got these priors that you're looking at and then we've updated just from at this kind of top level a previous election what have we learned and we take that forward to the next one i mean in very simple terms it's learning as we as we go yeah Um, and what you're getting at as well sounds like part of the push that we have for turnout and turnout is so important because that's your full representation of the population which is really interesting as well yeah i i think 
you've got lots of unknowns when you're when you're doing a poll. You know, you might have worked really hard to have got this lovely balanced sample of in, in your poll, but then it comes to polling day, and actually seniors turn out in twice the numbers that you're expecting, or college graduates turn out in you know, 20% higher numbers than you were expecting. Or although you might have matched the population that lives or the, the voting population that lives in that state, you have to have a model for what the actual population who are actually going to vote um, on on election day is. So so the, the, the really good quality pollsters, and now you have a, no, a notion of there being pollsters who do it properly and pollsters who maybe are using slightly older techniques, will have a simultaneous with collecting all of this contextual information from the the people that they're polling will also ask them questions like how likely are you to vote and in some cases of course right now as we're going to discuss they'll have voted already something like 70 75 million americans have already voted in this election with okay wow. the, the now election day being what was it three days away or something and that that becomes a sort of the close of the election period now but they've got to keep track of you know whether people have voted so maybe if if they say they voted they they give them a a probabilistic weighting of one that they they are going to vote because they have and maybe if they say yes i'm very likely to vote they only give them a weighting of maybe 90% or 0.9 that they're going to uh, going to vote because they say they are so there's a high probability but it's maybe not entirely certain yet and and so on and maybe you know down the the ranking to someone who says no i'm not going to vote so you would attribute them something to take account of that as well so then that helps you then map your sample demographically nicely balanced to one which is then going to match the actual voting sample which is the one that matters and then so i I don't think there's necessarily a realization that you know i mean we call it democracy and it's sort of this wonderful thing but actually there's so many things that can slightly get in the way of it you know it could be bad weather it could be uh long queues at the polling station a pandemic for the sake of (laughs) argument it could even be a, a massive pandemic virus yes and like, how much of an effect is that going to have? Because I mean, I'm seeing things online about massive queues, and the queues are socially distant. So, just as a human, I see that and I think, wow, how much do I want to vote? Because this is ten blocks long, for example. Yeah. Or have I missed my window for a postal vote? Yeah. Or am I just nervous? Am I not going to go out? Am I at risk? Yeah, it's it, it's it's it puts everything into into perspective. I mean. We're very lucky in the UK, and I don't think we necessarily appreciate it, uh, that that we have so many voting locations and, you know, comparatively, I think, a really quite well-resourced and non-partisan sort of voting apparatus. Broadly, that seems to be, I think, think, think true. But yeah, you look at the US and, and there seems to be, you know, you hear tell of people who waited in line for an hour and a half to vote, and that's good. That's that's really really uh, a good day in the voting firmament almost. But but then you, you you know I've heard of people waiting you know in line for eleven hours to vote. And you think how did you manage to squeeze this into a single day? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then of course you're absolutely right. So they've had to imp- they've had to implement sort of mitigating measures to take a, to take account of this. So they they had a primary season, which is where they try and nominate the original candidates for each party the democrat and the republican parties so they were able to refine this a little bit the states who run run these elections so i think things are sort of a little bit better set up than they they were but they've you know some states have introduced postal voting some states have introduced mandatory 
cross-state postal voting. Some states have introduced sort of absentee voting or, or, or made it very easy to do absentee voting, which is sort of very sort of similar. Then there are other states like Texas that have put sort of voting drop boxes around various counties, and that's created lots of issues. So, yeah, a lot, there's been lots of different possible mitigations that people and states have put in place to try to try to get over this this really difficult issue of to be honest it's probably not great at the height of a pandemic to have people standing in line and then crowding into a, a sports center or something to to, to cast their vote um, so they've, they've had to think quite creatively I think around that and so all of these people are coming together and voting and I know in Ireland when we have a vote it's proportional representation and there's right. a whole element of mathematical thinking that has to go into how that plays out and you know it's not as simple as first past the post in some places but we also have here the electoral college rules to consider. Yeah so it's probably worth taking a couple of minutes just to explain for for people who aren't entirely living and breathing the US elections at the moment um, what exactly the the context and the rules are for for the election. So to, I mean to start with there's actually many elections happening it's not just one so there's the presidential election there's also elections to the senate and then there's also elections to congress and then there's also state elections as well. So so there's lots and lots of different elections but we're really going to for the purposes of what we're talking about today we're just going to focus on the US presidential election. So you might think from the sort of one of the countries which likes to pride itself on its democratic credentials that that you'd have a plebiscite, you'd have a poll, you'd count the number of people who'd uh, had voted for one candidate over another and that would be that would give you their favoured candidate, they would win and they would become president. But it's not quite as simple as that. So what the, the founding fathers did uh, was to say, we're going to introduce a, um, a, a form of electoral redirection in this process, whereby we'll introduce a way for people to vote for candidates who will in turn vote for the president. So just to give you an example... If you're voting in the state of Pennsylvania, you will cast your vote for either Vice President Biden or President Donald Trump or one of a number of other smaller candidates. And then you'll tot up the total votes and the winner in that sort of first past the post election within Pennsylvania will then get to nominate a slate of candidates and the number of those candidates is important. So Pennsylvania will be 20 uh, candidates who themselves will all be instructed to vote for, say, if it was Donald Trump who won Pennsylvania, they would all be instructed to vote for Donald Trump in what's called an electoral college. So then all of these electoral college candidates from all over the US come together and they represent how their electorates individually voted, roughly in proportion to in terms of the number of those candidates, roughly in proportion to the populations of people within those states. So that's that's sort of how it fits together. And there's, there's, so for the people who want to know, there's 538 of these in total, these candidates. And so uh, you need 270 as your threshold, if you like, of these college votes in order to be elected president. It's amazing to think of it that way when you look at the popular vote in the um, last election and Hillary Clinton won it by, I think it was 3 million votes. Yeah. Um, but the Electoral College um, from the states represented that way, voted for Donald Trump. Yes. So it's a really interesting way to consider it and see how it plays out. And it's interesting as well to 
speculate how, I mean, not speculate, we would look at the data to see how does the population of each state actually sit in their representation for the Electoral College, which is another way to slice it. Um, because when you look at the whole map, like all of the lower populous states in the middle tend to be Republican. So the, the map looks <laughs> like it's very dominantly red when you have a colour yeah. against the different votes. So it's it's a funny way to picture it, but you need to delve in and understand it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I think, I think the the geography of the US, where some states are much more densely populated, others much more sparsely populated, doesn't really give you a, a good feel for where uh, where these electoral college uh, votes are coming from. I think you could you could redraw the map and it would it would squish in from the sides, so you'd get very very big looking states from like California, like Texas, like New York, that represent a substantial populations would very, very much dominate an electoral college map, which you don't get to really see from the usual geographical representation. Mm. And that sounds like even then visually, based on that data, we would pull out a visual representation of those swing states, which are so important and the ones that people are going to be looking to closely on election day. Yeah, so I think it's important to just pick this apart because it, it really does hang on this notion of a swing state and what a swing state really is. So the way that a lot of the sort of analysing organisations look at and read the race is is by essentially ranking all of the states into into a long line and you put all of the Democrat-leaning states on, say, over to the left-hand side of the line, and all of the Republican-leaning states onto the right-hand side of the line. And then you, you rank them. So you have everything that's most Democrat over to the left. And then gradually, as you come towards the center of the line, it becomes more marginal as to how the state's going to work, but still a little bit Democrat, say. And then it switches over to the more marginal Republican states who are likely to vote for Donald Trump. And then that goes all the way over to the really you know, dead certain states that are definitely going to vote vote for Trump on the far right-hand side. So the swing states are obviously the ones in the middle. There are these uncertain states where they could tip over to Trump or they could tip over to Biden, um, depending on you know fairly small fluctuations in voting uh, turnout and intention on, on the day. It's that really small fluctuation that makes it so interesting from a data point of view to me, because I would immediately think, why don't we just pull more heavily in the swing states? But you're still going to have to deal with that level of error that comes in off the sampling and the setup and all of the fluctuations that can happen right up until somebody actually goes and votes. So it's uh, amazing to think how difficult this is to predict. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult when it gets tight because if you think about it, say population of California is like 40 million and you know, if you're polling maybe 2,000 people, that's a tiny, tiny percentage of the, of the population. So the idea that even with all of these nice balancing techniques that you might use to adjust your, adjust your poll sample, the idea that you would, you know, get to you know, 1%, within 1% or, you know, 0.1% of the actual final vote on election day from from a poll of 1,000 to 2,000 people is just not going to happen. It's, it's, it's very unlikely. So so typically, when you're, you're polling that number, you'll see sort of polling errors are given sort of in the 3 to 4, 4.5% range. 
So that, you know, that already gives you an indication that if if the state is closer in terms of its race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, uh, closer than 3%, then you've got a difficult prediction job on your hands. And it really means you probably ought to be sampling a few more people in your poll to, to get that sort of fine granularity and pick out those those states. And luckily, we do in the sense that because those those swing states are inherently interesting. And so lots of polling organisations conduct these polls. And so you can stitch them together and get some uh, some belief, some probability from the collection of all these hundreds of polls that are going on, even if it's very close. So I was going to ask you then about how we bring together all of these um, data sets and what type of methods we might delve into. I mean, even right there, bringing together different polls sounds like a version of your ensemble approach. You know, you're trying to balance out some of the stronger and weaker um, polling techniques, maybe. Yeah, it, it's it's a really, really deep topic. And, and I sort of have to say, you know, I'm, slightly, I'm going to defer now to the people who are doing a really amazing job of this. So there's an organisation people may have heard of called 538. And they have uh, overall ensemble method of aggregating all of these polls as they come in. They attribute sort of a level of certainty to them, judging by how well they're carried out on some methodological basis. They look at the size of the sample. And, you know, they they then take all of these polls for a given state and are able to come up with a probability of loss or victory for a, a, a given candidate. So, for instance, I looked last night and uh, Wisconsin, for instance, is 93% likely to vote for, for Joe Biden and therefore 7% with the current statistics and polls likely to uh, vote for Donald Trump. So so that's that's the sort of the sort of result they can generate from all of this polling data. You know, they've got to really be over all of the possible errors and methodological approaches to be able to allow them to do this. I love on the website that it says we start with 40,000 simulations that our election forecast runs every time it updates. And it's just a lovely example of the power of data and computational resource right now. I mean, I imagine that's updating pretty frequently. So it's really a really cool example of pulling together so much data and building that pipeline. It feels to me, I don't know, it feels to me like they're building they're building these nice probabilistic models of each state and then they're running a sort of what we call a Monte Carlo simulation. They're essentially rolling biased dice. So, you know, for Wisconsin, it will be a dice which 93% of the time falls for Joe Biden and 7% of the time falls for um, Donald Trump. And then they're seeing, like, what does that entail? So it's quite interesting because, you, because the way the Electoral College works that we talked about, if the dice comes out in favour of Joe Biden, then he gets all 10 Electoral College votes. Whereas if it comes out in favour of Donald Trump, even though that happens very infrequently, then Donald Trump gets all 10 Electoral College votes for Wisconsin. So so it's it's very bitty in that sense. There's no there's no sort of partition of, of these Electoral College votes, except I have to say now, in two cases, I think it's Maine and Nebraska where they, they do actually partition them a bit more carefully. And so you could end up with a, a split going uh, to the different candidates. But broadly, in all the other states, that doesn't happen. It's, it's either winner takes all for the uh, winner of that state. So with all of these methods and approaches in mind, how should we think about taking benefit from this in our data science perspective? What's really interesting about 
the probabilities that these organizations and 538 in particular come up with is that they are very obviously highly interdependent, what we call correlated from a a statistical point of view. Mm. So I wondered that because even in those 40,000 simulations, it felt like, you know, some of them will have one outcome within it that has a knock on effect and other outcomes happen. So it's not just the roll of the dice. There's a dependency on how the dice last rolled for that other state. And then you roll it for the next one. It's factors like that. And it's factors like in, in their model, they'll have a certain proportion of the probability, which is attributed to what, what does the poll say? What do the last five polls say in that state? And then a factor of their model, which is just derived from the fact that Donald Trump is the current president of the United States, and that tends to give the incumbent a, a bit of an advantage over the challenger. And there are other nationwide sentiments which cross state boundaries and will tend to drive opinion in Florida and in Texas and in South Dakota and in Oregon. You know, so it, it's it's not just a set of totally independent elections that are happening in a, in a, in their own their own bubble. There is this nationwide picture um, which does drive a lot of voting sentiment, and so they have to take all of that into account when they're constructing these. Right. So that's where. If one state has rolled their dice, if that comes out a certain way, the next state's dice roll is kind of updated based on that information in our simulations. Oh, that's so, so right. So if, for the sake of argument, Donald Trump wins Florida, then that's really significant because then the probability that Donald Trump wins Arizona is not just standalone probability it's the it's it's what you referred to earlier it's a bayesian probability it's the probability that donald trump wins arizona given that he's won florida and indeed given that he's won lots of other states or not won lots of other states so it's it's given the exact configuration of votes that that they will see on election night coming in will drastically change um, the probability of, of winning in uh, individual states. So it's a very good example where independence between these these states is 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 not a is not a given and and needs to be uh, needs to be taken into account. But interestingly, we can still do something quite naive and quite simplistic, but still be quite useful in even in a even in quite a difficult environment like a, a national election. And he said it's naive. Um, are we getting a lead in here to naive Bayes by any chance? <laughs> exactly. So in naive Bayes, you know, for those of you who've looked at uh, this technique uh, before, you very much look at your features in a usually in a machine learning context or in a, an NLP context. And although you're trying to calculate quite a, again, quite an involved conditional probability, what's the probability I see this feature given that I've had all of these other features present themselves in my model, what you tend to do is assume that they are actually independent and you come, you do the calculation, which is much easier if you have independent random variables anyway, and you come up with something which, which gives you an approximation, and it is an approximation, to the end result. So in the context of the election, there's a very nice just serendipitous sort of picture which has just emerged, which I think uh, you know is, is quite fun, which is to say that there are three states as of today where 
Vice President Joe Biden has roughly a two-thirds probability of winning. They happen to be in a position in this electoral line of states that we talked about where they are very, very significant. So the three states are Florida, North Carolina and Arizona. In any of those states, if Joe Biden happens to win them, then the election pivots wildly into Joe Biden's favour. So if he wins any of Florida or North Carolina or Arizona, then the probability that Joe Biden, in this case, wins the election goes to uh, somewhere north of 99%. So it becomes virtual certainty. And that's because of the number of electoral delegates that each of those states have. So for Florida, it's like 29, for North Carolina, 15, and for Arizona, 11. And there are other states as well, but it just just jumped out at me that there were this probability of two-thirds that, that he he was going to win based on the 538 model, based on all his polling data. And I thought, that seems quite surprising that 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 overall that the these overall polling models are saying that Joe Biden's got about 10-11% chance of not winning and i thought that that seemed quite surprising given that the, there were these three pivotal states which would drive it and when i i did the calculation and i went right i'm going to do this naively i'm going to use a naive bayes i'm going to assume that they're all independent i'm going to essentially toss a coin what what do I get? Well, it, it turns out to be a very easy calculation to do. And if it were a coin, and it was, if it wasn't probability of two thirds, it was just probability of half. And Joe Biden only had to, you know, get ahead, if you like, in only one of these states. Then his overall win probability would be eighty seven and a half percent, very naively. And that's with a probability of a half. So with a probability of two thirds, it goes up into into the 90s. So it's actually sort of nearly 96% probability that Joe Biden will win at least one of Florida, North Carolina and Arizona. So he might win two, or he might win all three, or he might only win one. But when you add up all of those independent outcomes, and taking that as an assumption, you get this 96% figure. Now we have to be a bit careful because I didn't say it was absolutely certain that Joe Biden would win the election if he were to win one of those states. So I said it was about a 99% probability that he would win the election, which seems pretty high to me. So you factor that in and and the probability drops to some 94, 95%, something like that to win. But that's still, you know, a good 5% higher than the current models are showing for Joe Biden winning overall. So they're currently showing him an 89 to 90% probability of winning but these three states are so important and they have quite a high probability at the moment. And of course, you know, the probabilities may change, as we know. Yeah. You know, I think that means there is a lot of inherent uncertainty and conservatism, even now in the models around awarding these very high numbers to the Democrat candidate, Joe Biden. Well, you can really tell how edge of the seat this is and how edge of the seat it's going to be on Tuesday. So I imagine that that'll be keeping you up all night, Jeremy, and probably a lot of people around the world. And this is really interesting. Yeah, I have a very horrible feeling we're going to be kept up all night on Wednesday and Thursday as well. (laughs) Yeah, it'll go that way. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. 
You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.